welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Now, one of the things I said also uh, two weeks ago is that you have to read Isaiah with, if you like, theological bifocal glasses. Now, you remember bifocals have two lenses. They allow you, if you look down, to see things that are close to you. If you look up, to see things that are distant. You really have to read Isaiah with those bifocals on because while Isaiah is speaking into present situations, it seems rather obvious that in many instances there are things beyond that present situation that the words that Isaiah are speaking are applicable to and for. So it's a bit like looking at some hills and then beyond them some hills and then beyond them some mountains. You have to look at Isaiah in that way. Uh, Maybe a way of saying it is when you come to Isaiah, you bring both a microscope and a telescope. The microscope lets you see the things that are immediately in front of you. The telescope allows you to look into the distance. Um, I suggested to you that we read, by way of homework, the first five chapters. Um, Really hope you've done your homework. Uh, Good on you, one person. Um, We're going to have a pop quiz, and all those who fail, um, we'll work out some torture for you. No. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in those first five chapters, so if you could read those, that would be incredibly helpful. Those five chapters are generally regarded as the introduction or the prologue to the rest of the book, and they introduce us to Isaiah's main themes. Most of the other major prophets, a la Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they begin their ministries by recording the call that they received to the prophetic office. Isaiah doesn't outline his call until chapter 6. The preceding five chapters function as a scene setter. They give us an insight into the rest of Isaiah and where he will take us. And the main themes are judgment and hope. These chapters focus on Jerusalem. They are about the state of Jerusalem and its impending judgment. At various places throughout the book, Isaiah presents and treats Israel, the community of faith, under the guise of a city, the city of Jerusalem. So the city becomes the metaphor for the community. It becomes really important because that allows you to see with your bifocals. You are not just talking about an ancient city a long time ago that really doesn't have a lot of interest to anybody who's not a history buff. That city is a metaphor for the community of faith. And if you look up through your bifocals, down through the ages, you see the community of faith. We are today the community of faith. So the opening portion of Isaiah is a contrast. It's a contrast between the actual and the ideal. It's a graphic picture of what Jerusalem, the community of faith, is and yet what it's called and meant to be. So I'm going to give you a breakdown of these chapters. I don't know if you're in the habit of taking notes, but uh, a lot of times through this series, I'm going to say things that we don't have the time to go back into in detail. But if you've got a pen or a pencil or you're 
you can put it on your phone or your, uh, your tablet, it would be incredibly helpful. So I'm going to give you a breakdown of these five chapters, okay? So chapter 1 from verse 2 through 31 is an outline of what Jerusalem, this community of faith, presently is, and as a result of what it presently is, it's punishment. In chapter 2, the first five verses, there's a note of hope because it is a picture of what Jerusalem will be, is called to be. So you've got what it is, what it's called to be. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, running right through to chapter 4, verse 1, Isaiah flips back into Jerusalem, the community, as she is, and as a result, her impending judgment. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, you have again a note of hope. Jerusalem as she shall be. Jerusalem as she is called to be. Jerusalem the ideal. And then back in chapter 5, verses 1 through 30, Jerusalem as she is, and as a result of what she is, her impending judgment. So given its present state, its actual condition, the question posed by this chapter and then talked about through the rest of Isaiah is how can this Jerusalem, how can this Israel, how can this community become that one? How can the actual ever be transformed so that it is a reflection of God's intention, so that it can be the ideal? Now, as I say, you might be tempted to say, well, who cares? What does that have to do with me? That's where you put on your prophetic bifocals. If you simply look at the distant historical setting, then as I say, unless you're a history buff, much of it will mean nothing to you. But this isn't just about ancient Jerusalem, the geographical historical city. As I said, Jerusalem is a metaphor. It's an echo. It's a symbol of the covenant community of faith. It's not about bricks and mortar. It's about people. Let me read to you a couple of passages that highlight this. Isaiah 51, verse 16. He says, And I put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, saying to the city, You are my people. So you've got this link between the city and the people. Again, in Isaiah 62, verse 12, And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be sought out, a city not forsaken. So you've got this idea, this metaphor of a city representing a people. And that thought gets carried through the scriptures into the New Testament. When Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, You are a city set upon a hill. They are drawing from this Old Testament metaphor and idea. In fact, when you come to Isaiah chapter 2, as we will do, you see a city set upon a hill, exalted above all of the hills. So when Jesus says to his people, you are that city set upon that hill, they are connecting these in a way that perhaps we Westerners often don't. And then you go through to Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer to Hebrews says, but you've come right up into Mount Zion, into this city, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the gathering of countless happy angels to the church. So here again, the writer to the Hebrews is saying what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are that city. So as we are reading this, you need to read it with those prophetic bifocals. Yes, the microscope, but also the telescope. 
The idea of a city representing a community isn't limited to Jerusalem and God's people. Actually, there's another key city in the book of Isaiah and highlighted in other places going right through to the book of Revelation, another city that represents another community. It's the city of Babylon. The Bible, in some respects, is a tale of two cities, two communities, the in Adam community, the Babylonian community, the in Christ community, the Jerusalem or Mount Zion community. So in the scriptures, Babylon is often used symbolically to represent the godless, faithless community of people in rebellion against God. Author John Newport says this, Babylon is best understood as an archetype of all entrenched worldly resistance to God. This means that Babylon is a symbol which can never fully be identified with a certain earthly city or nation or institution. It can be said that Babylon represents a total culture of the world apart from God. So we see Jerusalem or Mount Zion picturing the community of faith. Through the Bible, we see Babylon picturing the exact opposite, the godless community. In the New Testament times, believers thought that Rome was their present Babylon. That's why Peter, ending his letter in 1 Peter 5, 3, says, She who is with you in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. He's talking about the church, and he says, I'm writing, or the church from where I'm presently writing, Babylon. And historically, Peter was in Rome. The, The Living Bible simply says, the church here in Rome. Eusebius and other ancient writers generally understood that phrase, Babylon, to be referring to Rome. So in that age, the early church recognized that their Babylon was Rome. If Babylon belongs to every age, it makes you wonder, what might the present-day equivalent of Babylon be? And by the way, as you read Revelation particularly, you see this idea of Babylon coming up again and again, and the fall and destruction of Babylon at the end of that book. It's not talking about bricks and mortar. It's talking about a culture apart from God. By the way, Walter Brueggemann offers a suggestion in terms of what might be a present-day Babylon that's worth thinking about. He says, I suggest that a powerful present-day equivalent of Babylon is the ideology of free market consumerism and its required ally, unbridled militarism, which is worth thinking about. Okay, it's probably a diversion of in terms of where we're meant to be going. But what I'm suggesting is that as we read these early chapters, don't simply allow your eyes to glaze over and think, who cares? Who cares about ancient history? Because you'll be missing what's intended by Isaiah, the community of God under the guise of this picture of Jerusalem. The massive problem that the picture presents, as I said, is that the city that's intended to be faithful And godly is anything but the actual versus the ideal. The city that Isaiah starts to address looks more like other faceless, godless, the other faithless, godless city and community. And he says to them in verse 10, listen to my message, you Sodom-schooled leaders. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah-schooled people. That's the message translation. Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, were the Babylon of their time. And so he's looking at the city and saying, you are just like your surroundings. You've been schooled and shaped 
by the faithless culture that surrounds you. Instead of being the faithful people of God, you look just like the people that you live among. This is nothing sort of tragic. This this city has betrayed its calling. This community has rebelled against the covenant that they'd entered into with Yahweh. And so chapter 1 starts with a court scene. In verse 2, the message translation says, heaven and earth, you're the jury. Listen to God's case. So we are introduced to a court case. Fascinating that when God first entered into covenant relationship with this community, with this people, he called witnesses to observe and endorse the covenant that he was making. So you go right back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1, and as he's entering into covenant with these people, he says, listen, heavens, I have something to tell you. Attention, earth. So he calls the witnesses of heaven and earth. Now in Isaiah, he's calling those two witnesses back to the stand, and he's saying, you were present when I entered into covenant with these people. Now look what they've done. They have violated the terms of our agreement. Heaven and earth, you're the jury. You listen to the case that I'm about to make. And then the chapter outlines Yahweh's charges against these people. This first chapter is soaked, marinated in covenant and in covenant thinking and language. That's hard for us as Westerners to understand because covenant isn't a word or a concept that we are particularly familiar with. Ancient covenants were highly structured relationships. There were very clear and specific expectations laid out for each party involved. And once the covenant had been entered into, then covenant loyalty and faithfulness was expected. When when we read the scriptures, we love to read the phrases that talk about God's steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, we say. That, that Hebrew word, hesed, is a word that really does have to do with covenant. It's not just warm, fuzzy feelings that God has generally for everything and everyone. It's about covenant love. One theological dictionary says of Hesed, it is the loyal love God displays based on a prior covenant relationship. So when it talks about his steadfast love, it is talking about that in terms of a covenant relationship. One dictionary describes it as God's dutiful love. I don't know how you think when you think about dutiful love, but mostly for us Western postmodern minds, we would rebel against the fact that those two words would even be put in a sentence together. Seems like an oxymoron. Duty and love, they don't belong in the same sentence. And our thinking, if you're in love, you're overcome by warm, fuzzy emotions, and being dutiful isn't even in the picture. If you have to start being dutiful in a relationship, then to quote, and with apologies to the righteous brothers, you've lost that love and feeling. You know, oh, it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. In our way of thinking, if you don't have the warm, fuzzy feelings, then you're really not in love. When duty kicks in, then something's wrong. It's... Listen, before the, before the definition of love was corrupted by the romanticism of the 1800s, those two words always belonged together. Romanticism as a movement made love all about authentic feelings, but 
but biblically it's not. It's not that feelings are absent. They just are not the crux of the matter. And um, I often point that out at the weddings I do. Um, Karen often says to me, sometimes you can sound a bit down on things, you know, raining on the parade, a bit cynical, because they are in love and it's wonderful and yes, yes, yes it is. But you want to give them a dose of reality too and say, when you wake up in the morning or a morning and it's more about duty than love, you haven't picked the wrong person. That's when love actually has a chance to rise. We talk about falling in love, but you read it biblically, it's rising in love. And the wonderful description of love found in 1 Corinthians, one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the English language, there's not a feeling involved in that list. Read it through. There's no feelings involved, no emotions. Covenant love boils down to a willingness to put another person's concerns well before your own. And covenant love is heavily soaked in this idea of being loyal, of loyalty. So Yahweh drags these people, his people, into court and charges them with a violation of the covenant. He brings the witnesses, heaven and earth. You were there when we made covenant. Now look at what's happening. They have not displayed covenant loyalty. They have not lived up to covenant expectations. They have failed to live out the ethical injunctions of the covenant. Now, I can almost hear someone saying, come on, Don, it's old covenant. We're not under that. This stuff doesn't apply to us. We're under grace. Well, you're right. We aren't under an old covenant. We are under a new one, a better one. However, don't make the mistake of thinking that we can now play fast and loose with its expectations and with its requirements. Grace doesn't remove expectations and ethical injunctions from this new covenant. It gives us the power to live them out. Let me be really practical here. Okay, I don't want this to float over our heads. We are a covenant community. We are God's community of faith. God has an actual for us, sorry, an ideal for us that he wants us to be transformed into. Sometimes, as I say, you can read this stuff, it kind of goes over your head and you think, well, I'm so far removed from it, how does it matter to me? But let me, as I was preparing this, I thought practically what might covenant love look like for me? What might, it, what might it look like for you where you and I live? How do we know that we might not be violating covenant agreement? And I thought very quickly of three things that we might like, or, or as the case may be, might not like, to consider. And I'm going to be a little bit brutal here, okay? So, so um, the chances of some of you being a little bit sort of taken aback might be, might be very real, possibility just now. But stick with me for a minute, okay? Covenants always are ratified by the parties involved. There's always a covenant sign. Whenever people make covenant, there was always a sign that ratified that agreement. In the Old Testament community, the covenant sign was the circumcision of all the males within the community. That was the boundary marker that meant inside, outside. If you weren't circumcised, then the reality is you weren't part of that community. No matter what you professed, what you said, if you hadn't involved, hadn't been involved in the boundary marker sign, then you were outside the covenant. In the New Testament, 
The Bible teaches us that the sign of the new covenant is baptism. Let me read to you a couple of passages. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, When you came to Christ, he set you free from your evil desires, not by a bodily operation of circumcision, but by a spiritual operation, the baptism of your souls. The message translation says this, If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. That's the covenant marker of a new covenant believer. I'm shocked, to be honest, at how many followers of Christ treat baptism like a plus one, an extra, kind of like mud flaps on your car or a sunroof. But, you know, if you want them, they're there, but really not required. It's not what the New Testament teaches. It's not what covenant realities are like. This is, this is a boundary marker for a community. If you haven't embraced the covenant sign, then can you actually be said to be fully involved in the community if it forms a boundary marker of that community? Now, I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm not trying to ruin your day. And I'm not going as far as saying if you aren't baptized, you cannot be a Christian. It's not my call, and I'm glad about that. But I want to challenge what in many instances is a very casual approach to discipleship. And part of that casual approach comes because we don't think covenant. And yet the Bible is a covenantal book. God makes covenants with people. Jesus called what you and I are involved in the new covenant. And you can't just be false and loose with, oh, well, I don't think that really matters. If you haven't been baptized and you're feeling really bad right now, as I say, I'm not trying to ruin your day. I'm trying to make you think. So don't get angry. Get thinking. What does that mean for me? Do I believe what that old geezer up there just said? Secondly, and I'm warning you, this doesn't get any less brutal. Involved in covenants was always tribute. In the suzerain covenants of the ancient Near East, tribute was always paid from the inferior partner to the superior partner. It was a way by which you could express gratitude to that superior who had entered into covenant with you. Could I be so bold as to suggest that tithing isn't just an optional extra, a plus one either? That it is a biblical command and needs to be seen in terms of a covenant. It needs to be seen covenantally. It's our way, if you like, of paying tribute. It's not earning anything. It's not, it's not stacking up merit. It is simply an act of gratitude, acknowledging the superiority of our covenant partner. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23, it says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. Some of you are sitting there and thinking, how on earth... And a preacher get tithing out of Isaiah chapter 1. It's not there. Believe you. We're creative. <laughs> if you're here for the first time, I knew that's what they do. It's what they always do. Well, I'm sorry, but tithing is a very practical way of ensuring that God's concerns trump our own, which, remember, is what covenant love is all about. And I'll tell you something. The first, in, in the ancient 
Near East, the first telltale sign of outward or outright rebellion in covenant relationship was that refusal to pay the, the tribute. I'm not paying it anymore. I'm not paying it. That was considered by the superior as a breaking of covenant. As I said, don't get angry, get thinking. Thirdly, there was always in covenants a meal to be participated in. And to participate regularly with our covenant partner in a meal indicates continued covenantal loyalty. To absent myself from the meal says, I no longer want you as my partner. Some of you may remember a story where David was to be part of a meal that Saul was having with his family, and he absented himself from that meal. When he didn't turn up the first day, Saul kind of looked around, didn't say anything. When he didn't turn up the second day, he said to Jonathan, where is David? And he got really, really angry, you may remember, ending up throwing a spear at Jonathan on that occasion. But what that absence said was it confirmed to Saul's paranoia and his suspicions that David lacked loyalty. He, was, he wasn't at the covenant meal. In the New Covenant, we have a meal. We call it the Eucharist or the Communion or the Lord's Supper. We partake of it, and one of the things that we do as we partake of it is that we are swearing to and reaffirming our covenant loyalty. When you eat the covenant meal and then go out and deliberately violate the covenant expectations, how does that make you different from a Judas who took the bread from Jesus' hand and then went out into the night and betrayed him? I did tell you this portion might be a little brutal. But it, it was Isaiah speaking to this community with that kind of brutality. Isaiah is not chicken soup for the Christian soul. Okay, it's not a TED talk. Not that I'm against TED Talks, but we aren't talking TED Talks here. We are talking about a person under the anointing of the Holy Spirit who is challenging the covenant community with the actual and their call to the ideal. And he's saying, you continue to live there and I will deal with this. He's heavy-handed and, and quite brutal in, in places. He said things to listeners that would have been as offensive, if not more so, than the things that I just said to you. And if you are offended, please don't go looking for a hollow log and a handsaw. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you obviously weren't here two weeks ago. Because that's how they dealt with Isaiah. They got so sick of Isaiah's words that they found a hollow log, put him inside it, and sawed it in half. Keep those emails coming. Forget the sores. So, in this first chapter then, Yahweh drags these covenant breakers into court. He is the judge and he's the prosecuting attorney. He's got the witnesses, heaven and earth, and he lays down the charges. And there are three basic charges, and you can read them, verses 2 to 9, it's iniquity in the nation. Verses 10 to 20, it's insincerity in the temple. And verses 21 to 31, it's injustice in the city. Iniquity in the nation, insincerity in the temple, injustice in the city. And then he says, and as a result, of that judgment will come. And that's verses 28 through 31. The tragedy of this scene is that it isn't some unknown faceless citizen in the dock, it's the judge's children. It's Israel, God's firstborn. 
And he says in verse 2, The children I have raised and cared for so long and tenderly have turned, uh, and tenderly have turned against me. Even the animals and the donkey and the ox know their owner and appreciate his care for them, but not my people Israel. No matter what I do for them, they still don't care. Now, in this court scene, there is, of course, a defense. And the defense rises up and says, What are you talking about? We worship. We come to the temple. We do the religious things that you require. We've done all of those things faithfully. And God's response is swift and to the point. And I'm reading the message translation, which I have to say sounds a little bit Grinch-like. But you'll, you'll hear it as we go through. He says, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. That's the Grinch bit, okay? I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that, I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. That's the second Grinch bit. While you go right on sinning, when you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or how loud or often you pray, I will not be listening. Amos says something very similar. Amos is prophesying at the same time Isaiah is, but he's in the northern kingdom, saying exactly the same thing. Now, I know that people with what we call churchless faith, you know, who are against the churches, they always seize on verses like this to justify their position of animosity towards church life. In my view, I think they completely miss the point. God isn't saying, I hate your forms of worship, since these forms were the very ones that he had given them. He had appointed them. What he's saying is, I hate it when the forms aren't a reflection of reality. Later in Isaiah, he says, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He wants our outward forms to be a true reflection of an inward reality. So when people say, ah, you don't need the forms, I think God would probably say to them, what's the point of having things in your heart if you don't express them with the appropriate forms? It's not a matter of separating those things. It's a matter of having them in the right relationship. The heart reflected in outward forms in a proper way. He goes on to say to them in verse 12, I don't want this trampling of my courts. You know, a modern-day translation might say, mere church-going was never my goal. It's It's not what I required of you. When our lives are willfully out of order, then our church going, as it were, is in danger of becoming an exercise in hypocrisy. Now, even at this late stage of the trial, there is an offer of clemency from this judge and from this prosecuting attorney. And he says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the dreadful situation that this community of faith have arrived at. They have been charged and they are guilty. And even at this late stage, an offer of clemency is being made. Much later in Isaiah, we will be introduced to a mysterious servant who will be the one that makes this cleansing offered to them here possible. 
In verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When we get to that mysterious servant in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him and that he would bear the sins of many. Same word in the Hebrew. I'm not pleased with this. I am pleased with that. The offer, the offer of clemency, the offer of restoration is refused by this stubborn and willful people, and so judgment is pronounced. All sinners shall utterly perish, for they refuse to come to me. Shame will cover you, and you will blush to think of all of those times you sacrificed to idols in your groves of sacred oaks. You will perish like a withered tree or a garden without water. The strongest among you will disappear like burning straw. Your evil deeds are the spark that sets the straw on fire, and no one will be able to put it out. These are tragic words. These are not words spoken to gross sinners who claim no relationship with God. They are being spoken to covenantal people. They are spoken to people who have betrayed the covenant, who have not lived out covenant expectations in the way that God intended they would. Listen, being God's people is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. There's nothing like it in all the world, but it is also an awesome responsibility. We are called by the Lord. Elect, the Bible says. Called by God to him for the nations. That's what Israel was to be. And elect people among the people for the people. And they stopped being that. They turned all the blessings inward. Hosea says they became a fruitful vine that brought forth fruit unto itself. They nationalized God and they kept people out. The very thing that they were called to be, they refused to be. And God challenged them and challenged them and challenged them. And when they, they stiffened their neck and just said, we will not do that, we will not be that. Well, I'm sorry, but with the, with the awesome privilege comes awesome responsibility. Walter Brueggemann says, Yahweh has a particular purpose for Jerusalem, the, the community of faith. Don't see the city, see the community. And will act in severe ways against the city or the community that fails in that purpose. Amos puts it this way, out of all of the families on earth, I picked you. Therefore, because of your special calling, I'm holding you responsible for all your sins. Peter says it this way. There's a judgment coming, and that judgment will begin among the community of faith. It will begin in the house of God, he says. We, we have an incredible privilege. We have an awesome responsibility. And this is the message of Isaiah. Some of you are thinking, Don, couldn't you have done Proverbs or, you know, um, you know, something that would have been inspirational and, and, and uh, you know, TED Talk-like. Well, sometimes, you know, we have to be confronted by the words of the prophets who say, this is what you're called to. At the moment, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. I will come to you. Come, let us reason together. I will be here. I will cleanse you. I will put this thing right. But you've got to be obedient and, and, and responsive. And then you will eat of the fruit of the land, all of the good things that I've planned. Those things can come. But you are not in a place right now where I can give you that. 
Your hands are filled, we'll go on to see, with your own idolatrous practices and disordered loves. How can I put into your hands the things that I want to when you like that? It's not going to happen. This is as relevant today as it was in Isaiah's time. And, and um, what we need to allow is the Holy Spirit to touch and convict our hearts where we know that there are places in our lives that are outside his jurisdiction, outside his rule, that they don't reflect his ethical injunctions, they don't reflect what we are called to be. Rather than just willfully turn our back, we need to tenderly come before him and say, Father, would you forgive? Would you cleanse? The grace that you give is to empower me to live this. Would you release it to me, through me, for me? That's my prayer this morning. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.